0: Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the M Podcast. Happy New Year, M Critters! So happy to be talking to you in 2022. Today's episode is on EEGs. Now, don't stop listening if you don't even have EEGs at your hospital. We specifically address that case scenario. So this is going to be relevant to everyone, except maybe my pre-hospital brethren. And for you folks, I apologize. I promise in the reason in the upcoming episodes I will do stuff that is clinically relevant to you as well. Uh, but if you work in the hospital in a resuscitative field, then this episode is right up your alley. And of course I am joined with half of NeuroMcrit Casey Albin and if you've listened to any of her stuff or read her things you know she is fantastic but before we get there a quick ad for my stuff which is I'm going to be moving into coaching I want to have some coaching folks that want to talk about productivity and time management and really not to have the goal of doing more But the goal of finding a true sense of contentment and joy with the things you actually are doing. So probably doing less, but doing them more effectively and eliminating the stress and misery of a poorly managed life from the productivity perspective. If this sounds at all interesting, come on over to mcrit.org slash coaching. And you'll be directed to a link where you could uh, say, I'm interested in this. It's going to be a little while because my slots are very limited right now. But I would love to put you on a wait list if this sounds interesting. Uh, you know this is a particular area of interest for me. I've spent uh, two decades researching every piece of information on finding happiness through better productivity measures. So if this sounds like something up your alley, please come on over to mcrit.org slash coaching. That's mcurtorg slash coaching. And uh, just put your name down on the list and I will be in touch ASAP. Okay, let's get into the EEG episode. So, you know, listeners should know who you are, but just in case someone's joining for the first time to one of your productions, who are you and what do you do?
1: So my name is Casey Albin and I'm a neurointensivist at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta.
0: Yeah, and you form one of the two parts of NeuroMcrit, and you've been putting some amazing posts on MCrit and some amazing tutorials in the Twitter world, and I just love to read your new stuff each time it comes out, so I'm so happy you're joining us today to talk about a topic that you just put a post on MCrit on, EEGs for the resuscitationist and intensivist. Now, you went very deep. that post. And it is wonderful. Uh, I want to pull back a little bit to people that are not going to have the same opportunities you might have at your shop. And some of the ED docs I've been talking to lately don't even anymore have neurology at their hospital. It seems there's a dire shortage of neurologists. I don't know why. What's going on with that? Do you have any insight into why that is?
1: I I honestly don't know either. But Dr. Uh, Ndengayich and I really wanted to at least shed some light on one of the things that used to at least be done pretty commonly in both the ED and the intensive care unit, which is EEG monitoring. In terms of the shortage of neurologists, I don't, I I can't say much about that. I know a lot of people have moved to doing sort of tele-neurology. That has become more available and I would hope has increased access to specialized neurologic care.
0: Yeah, I I hope that's the case. Uh, Maybe it's just a technology transition. Let's talk first about those hospitals that don't have access to uh, at least 24 hour. In many places, it's zero EEG. Even spot EEGs may sometimes happen during daylight hours, but not at eight o'clock at night when you really want it. And some of the comments on that post discuss some other options. Let's pretend you're at a hospital that for whatever reason does not have access to even a spot EEG. What options are there to diagnose things like non-convulsive status?
1: So I think all of the things that could be used to diagnose non-convulsive status have not really been validated. I think there was a, a very interesting comment about the use of CT perfusion. And can we see some hyperperfusion in these places that might be more electrically active? That is a very interesting sort of research domain. And can we look, instead of looking at poor perfusion, places that might be hypermetabolic and having ongoing epileptic activity? But to my knowledge, that's not really validated in the field yet. And so I think you need to have still a very, the best tool out there is the neurologic exam. And that sounds very neurologist of me to say. <laughs> but I think, you know, what, when we think about critical care EEG monitoring, the, the the people we're trying to capture are the people who just look more encephalopathic than would be predicted by whatever illness they have. So if they're septic and yeah, they've got a little bit of a lactate, but they just look terrible, that might be the person that we really need to do some further investigation on. And I can tell you one of the things that really should clue people into suspecting non-convulsive or subclinical seizures is eye and gaze deviation, like persistent gaze deviation. If you see that in someone who's like really a little bit more obtunded than you would think they should be based on the pathology, that's I think should raise your level of clinical suspicion And obviously these are, these can be really subtle findings where it's just a little hand twitch or their, the corner of their mouth is twitching. And for those sort of subtle, but clinical seizures, those come with a very nice kind of almost three Hertz pattern. So the cadence of that little facial twitch or that little hand jerk is really, they have a rhythmicity to it. It's not just the, mov- the movements that don't really have a specific cadence. Seizures and the clinical but very subtle clinical seizures really do have a cadence to it. So I think as much as I love technology and I think that we're going to get better and hopefully we're going to have more advanced diagnostics, really going back and looking at the patient is probably the best tool we have. Uh,
0: one thing that was particularly interesting for these environments is pupillometry—not just looking with a pen light, but the real objective, quantitative pupillometry. And you'd have to invest, but you could—it's certainly a lot less financially difficult than creating an entire EEG program. How? What's the status of that for diagnosing?
1: You know, I saw a paper about this recently, and I I cannot remember exactly where it was published. I want to say it was in the Journal of Neurocritical Care. I want to say it was Sarah Hawker and the group at Mayo that was looking into the use of pupillometry to diagnose nonconvulsive status or status epilepticus. I unfortunately have not looked into it further. I do think again it's an area of ongoing research. I think of pupillometry. What we have been using pupillometry for is looking at increased intracranial pressure and using the MPIs to give us a clue of who might have ongoing intracranial hypertension. But again, another source of research. I will certainly try to look up that po- that paper and we can put it in the show notes. Cool. I think it is. It will be a future direction.
0: What about the smaller number of electrode systems that are supposed to give some kind of spot look into it without the full head package?
1: Yeah, so people have mixed feelings about this we the one that comes to mind is the cerebell model. We had that when I was a resident. I actually felt like it was pretty helpful. It's very easy to use. They come with these little anyone can do it uh, little instructions. you put the um the electrodes on there, are, I think there's six of them. And so the cerebell will actually make noise for you about the rhythmicity of the uh, discharges the patient has. I actually had a very good experience using it. I think that there's a mixed experience, but my experience was personally pretty good, at least for ruling out, ruling in. Am I gonna localize where the is coming from with that? No, but if you're just trying to get a sense of is this person having slow waves that are consistent with a toxic metabolic encephalopathy, I think, yeah, like it can, it can either take you there or say, hey, this person's having ongoing persistent discharges. You probably need to look into this further.
0: Let's say you have an EEG program at your center. Who gets a spot EEG versus a video EEG versus a continuous for some period of time video EEG? How do you make that determination?
1: Yeah. So, The way I think about it, in my personal practice, and I again, I am at the luxury of having the opportunity to get continuous video EEG monitoring pretty much most of the patients we wanted. I was using routine EEGs for patients who had come in, had what sounded like a seizure, or they seized in the ED, and we could hook them up shortly after and see if there were any sort of Signs that would say this person has ongoing risk for seizures. This person is at risk of epilepsy and they would probably benefit from being on an anti-epileptic drug. So quick study, is your EEG totally stone cold normal and which first time seizures, maybe you can get away without starting an anti-epileptic drug or like you've had a seizure, we hooked you up, you have an EEG that shows that you might have some sort of pattern like juvenile myoclonic seizures. Like you're going to need an AED. So that was my practice was someone coming in, we're just going to get a routine to determine who does or does not need AED therapy.
0: Okay. Let's pause you there before you go on.
1: Mm -hmm. Let's
0: say you didn't have that. Would the impetus then be to prophylactically start them on something Mm -hmm. or to wait until they have outpatient neurology follow-up?
1: Oh, gosh. I think that this is still... (laughs) Uh, I think it depends on your practice and I think it depends on being able to take a really good neurologic history and a good neurologic exam. So I think very frequently people will come in and they will have the first first generalized tonic-clonic seizure, where someone said, that is clearly a seizure. You need to go in. But if you talk to them, you'll actually find out that they've been having little events, if you ask them, do you ever stare off into space and then you, you don't really remember what happened, like for the last 20 seconds, or have you ever had any rhythmic twitching of your hand? If you really dig, you can find out. I'm like really being a neurologist here, like going back to the history and the physical exam, because a lot of the time these are not first time seizures. And then if they have, they've had seizures up to that point, now they've presented with a generalized tonic clonic seizure, for sure, I think that they should be started on. If this is truly the first seizure they've had, then I think it becomes really the shared decision-making. Do you want to see how it goes? And your risk for seizures is probably pretty low, but you can certainly feel better, and I don't think it's ever wrong to start them on something until they can see a neurologist and follow up. And that neurologist may well stop it and say, this was a one-time thing. Nothing else really has a red flags like. Symptom for me, I'm okay with this.
0: All right, now you're about to then, before I cut you off, talk about when you would order a small period of time video EEG versus a longer 24 hour continuous EEG.
1: We want to be cognizant that this is a resource and it is a very time intensive resource, right? So for me, I am relying on my epileptologist to look at the first hour of that EEG and kind of determine from that EEG, is there any concerning features? And so that's been published and now validated with the 2HELPS2B score. It is mostly based on what the EEG looks like. The one sort of clinical point you get is for what, do you have a history of epilepsy, which you get a point for, or was there a really convincing event that you're hooking this person up for? So you get a point for that too. If this is someone who is in the MICU and their exam is just worse than we would expect, given what their disease burden is, and we're putting them on EEG just to get a sense of what's going on, you don't get a point for that. So then it's just a matter of what does the EEG look like? The epileptologist can calculate that score and say, this person needs to be on for 12 hours, for 24 hours. And all the research shows that we, show, we catch probably about 90% of things by 48 hours. So probably no one needs to be on longer than that, unless there's a evolving change or this is being used for hepatic uh, encephalopathy, not hepatic, hypoxic encephalopathy, or someone who's getting DCI monitoring for a subarachnoid hemorrhage. There are certainly people that we keep on longer, but the sort of run of the mill, are they, is their exam works because they're in non-convulsive status? Like probably catch that within 48 hours.
0: Cool. All right. Rapid fire. Mm -hmm. Which of the following patient groups should get empiric continuous EEG monitoring? Post-cardiac arrest? Yes. Okay. Intracranial hemorrhage, intubated? Probably not. Okay. Subaracts, bad, high grade?
1: High grade subaracts, yes.
0: Okay. Low grade subaracts?
1: No, you have an exam. Okay. Fair enough.
0: What other groups am I missing that should get empiric monitoring?
1: empiric monitoring, probably there are not many people who've had a seizure, like people that are like coming in with status, put them on the EEG because you want to figure out like, have you treated the status or are they still in non-convulsive and how much have you treated the seizures?
0: Let's get into the main topic of your post. Uh, A lot of times I'll have the patient on continuous EEG, but I won't hear anyone giving me any information about it for any period of time, unless I actively seek it out. What should I be looking for on the actual screen that would alert me, oh, something bad's going on, this is non-convulsive status. Is there a way that I, as a complete novice, could actually see something?
1: No, like the, like I wish, I really wish that we, and I think that we will get to that point at some point during my neuro career, we will get there to read a raw EEG and to filter out all of the muscle artifact and all of the other artifacts. And especially if you're in an ED and an intensive care unit where there are all sorts of electrical signals in the room, like they're just messy. And you actually really have to know what you're doing. Now that said, A lot of people and a lot of programs now have this persist AI monitoring and the persist is very nice because it actually does have a little automated seizure detection box and that will, that little box will have these little red spikes if it thinks that you're having a seizure. And so if you see one of those, like that should certainly alert you. But a lot of the times that persist monitor is not being displayed in the patient's room. So Mm, you can mm. probably work with your epileptologist to get it. And then it's very nice because it will just say like the AI algorithm has detected a seizure. And then you can call your epileptologist and say, hey, was that real?
0: Most of your post is actually interpreting these reports, and much akin to our radiology brethren, sometimes reports, whether deliberately or inadvertently, don't want to give us the actual answer we want, which is what the F is going on and what to do about it. They stick with the actual technical observations rather than giving us a true answer. And your post was fantastic in really providing intensivists some background to be able to interpret it. Is there any way you could give us a synopsis of that very intensive post in terms of what we should be looking for on those reports?
1: So I think the biggest thing and and what I would sort of direct people to the post about, there is the clear cut and dry, the patient is having seizures, and you get that in a report. But most of our critically ill patients have all these sort of not normal features on their EEG that are not quite seizures, and some of those are more concerning than others. And so I would think that the big takeaway I have is, A, if you can, talk to your epileptologist and let them know what the patient's looking, because... Just like with radiology, like a lot of it, the clinical context really matters. But then anything that's evolving so that the pathology is becoming more rapid, that should really clue you into that this is a possible malignant and evolving pattern. So an example of that would be the lateralized periodic discharges, to my ear, always raised a red flag of this has an epileptic potential. If those kind of stay, there, maybe half a hurt, like occurring, like every two seconds or every one second, they're not changing, that's probably okay. If they start to become that you're having these discharges now twice a second, that should really clue you into that's basically almost there. You're almost at a seizure. So the evolution and like the knowledge of that there are these things that can happen on the EEG that are not normal... If they're static and not fluctuating, it's probably fine. They, that might just be the patient's encephalopathy. If those patterns are becoming more rapid and they're evolving, that should really clue you into, hmm, I probably need to escalate something, or I should at least be really closely watching the patient.
0: I love it, all right. I'll ask you one final question for the, again, the brethren that don't have access to all of this stuff. You're sure. accepting a transfer call for a clear-cut case of status epilepticus. And they've now progressed to intubating the patient. They have them on a midazolam drip or a propofol drip, depending on their center. Uh, But they don't have EEG access, and it's going to be a couple hours of transfer. Would you just leave those medications at the point where there's no clinical convulsions? Or would you actually go further to try to empirically bring them to a lower state, a higher state of general anesthesia, such that non-convulsive may be blunted, even though it might be higher a dose than they need?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Personally, my practice is just to keep them on whatever level of sedation they need to blunt any clinical event. And if they get here and we discover that they have had non-convulsive seizures, I I think that's a miss. But I think over-sedating them and, and opening up to the possibility of more complications for something that is less likely and may or may not have, it certainly doesn't have quite the same amount of Uh, associated brain damage, like that to me, as long as we don't see clinical seizures, I'm okay with that level of sedation for them.
0: Cool. Is there anything we missed that you want to talk?
1: I think that's really it. Yeah. Head to the post.
0: So there you go. Uh, If you want to see the show notes for this, mcrit.org slash 315, and you'll find the link to Casey's original post there as well. If you are an MCRIT member, thank you. You are making this all possible. If you are not a member, please consider joining at MCRIT.org join because it's pretty cheap and it may revolutionize your ability to take care of really sick patients in a way that may save lives and make your career more fun. Uh, if you want to make your life more fun, please consider coming on over to MCRIT.org coaching to get some more information about productivity, time management, eudaimonia, and other forms of happiness seeking in your life. Scott Weingart for the Amcrypt podcast saying bye bye.